Well, as we continue in our series on the gathered church, we have talked already about what the church is, uh, what, who we are, what God is doing here, what's his purpose and plan for the church. We then talked about the importance of gathering together regularly, consistently as the people of God. What if I don't feel like going to church? We addressed that question. And then we began to talk about what is it that we're supposed to be doing when we gather together. We looked at what makes up our corporate worship, the elements of the worship, why, why we do what we do, what, what the aim is behind all of that, how it's informed by scripture, uh, what we're supposed to be doing when we gather together. And of course, last week we talked about then the centrality of the word of God with more detail. We've been talking about that throughout, but... Uh, Andy gave us just a, a really helpful pointer towards that, that great truth. The word of God is central to us as God's people, as a church, and also asked us to evaluate how are we being formed by it, right? So all of this to help us understand, and sorry, we're working through the audio and video issues this morning, but we'll get there. All this to help us understand uh, more of just what it is, again, that God is, what's he called us to in salvation, not just not just that he's called us to himself in relationship, but he's called us to one another in relationship. He's saving a people. He's called us his church, that we would have a, a clearer uh, picture of what that means and, and uh, hopefully a greater love for the church. So with what we've talked about, uh, it seems like sort of the next logical step would be then to talk about this question. What is church membership all about? Do I need to join a local church. You're obviously all here attending church, but what about membership? That seems like a, like a, a next step. Uh, is that important? Is that biblical? What's the deal with church membership? That's what we want to talk about this morning. So let me give you, uh, just so we understand what church membership even means, let me give you all a, a, a working definition of what church membership entails. Let me put this up for you. Church membership, a definition. This is from Jonathan Lehman, who's a, a part of Nine Marks Ministries, this is from an article, just so you know, that we use in the first membership class that we, that we hold here. If, you go in, if you've been through our membership class, you, we've talked about this. If you're thinking about going through our membership class, this is the first session, all right? So just so you all know, today, you're one step ahead. You're all in the first membership class today, all right? Uh, Church membership is a formal relationship between a local church and a Christian, characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. All right? Simple definition. I think it's pretty, pretty good, a great way to concisely understand what membership is really aiming at. Notice that several elements are present here. A church body exists, right? There's a local gathering of people together. They affirm you as the individual Christian. They affirm your profession of faith. They, they affirm your baptism as being credible. In other words, they say, yes, you've professed Christ and we see that in you, right? They affirm that in you. Then this church body promises to give oversight to your discipleship. We will 
care for you. We will, we will do the, the one another's of scripture with you. We will build you up. We will care for the discipleship, your growth in Jesus. We take responsibility for you as belonging to, to us, this family of God here. And then the individual, again, formally submits themselves to that care. Yes, I am, want to come under your care, and I also will care for you, right? So that's the, that's the gist of what church membership is all about. In that same article, Lehman uses this really helpful analogy. Let me read to you what he says here. He says it's a membership, is a declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. And then he says it's, it's like a passport. It's this announcement made in the press room of Christ's kingdom, the declaration that a professing individual is indeed an official, licensed, card-carrying, bona fide Jesus representative. And I like that analogy because I, I do think it's helpful. Many of you have passports. If you've ever traveled internationally, you know that what happens when you, when you arrive in your destination, you get stopped off at the immigration booth there, right, uh, a port of entry, and they say, show us your passport. And you show them that passport, and on that passport, I'm going to make an assumption here, uh, so forgive me if you're not an American citizen, but you slip that American passport there, there's the, your pictures on there, and, and there's the seal of the United States, and it basically says to them, yes, this person is a citizen of the USA. What is that passport then communicating? It's communicating to that foreign country that uh, you are visiting them as a, in a sense, a representative of the U.S. The U.S. is vouching for you to say they belong to us, right? And so church membership is, is kind of similar in that way. It is a, it's a formal relationship. It is a, ultimately a covenant relationship that we enter into together to say we, we vouch for one another as belonging to the kingdom of Christ. We say to you, we recognize your profession of faith and baptism as valid. And so we affirm you. We acknowledge you before the nations as belonging to Christ. We extend that oversight of our fellowship. And you say to the church body, insofar as I recognize you to be a faithful gospel-declaring church, that you are indeed the body of Christ, I submit my presence and my discipleship to your love and your oversight. That makes sense? That's, in a nutshell, what church membership represents. What I want to do this morning is talk about three things that point us to the why it matters, all right? If that's what it is, if that's our understanding of what church membership is, why does it matter, all right? So the first reason why it matters is this. Church membership matters because the Bible actually assumes it. The Bible assumes it. This is a question that often comes up when we talk about church membership, is people will say, well, is it even biblical? Is it biblical? I mean, why the formality of that? Isn't it true that if I place my faith in Christ, if I become a Christian, if I'm trusting in him for my salvation, that that automatically makes me a member of the church? And the answer to that question is sort of a yes, but, Right? Yes, but. The yes is this. Of course, when, when we're talking about placing our faith in Christ, when we're saved, in other words, we do, in fact, become part of his 
kingdom, part of his family. You now belong to the universal church, past, present, future, eternal, right? We are all, as followers of Jesus, members of his body, members of his family, the church. But that's in a universal sense. The Bible, though, speaks of something more specific than that. And in fact, as we just mentioned, the, fa the, the fact that I make a profession of faith and I declare myself to be a follower of Jesus is still uh, needing to be validated. I'm talking biblically here, and I'll show you some evidence of that. Validated by you as other believers to say, yes, we see your baptism and your profession of faith is credible. So that necessitates a proximity. That necessitates relationship. That necessitates other believers who know me, right? And that becomes then the local church assembly. And what makes me then a believer is, is in part then a belonging to this recognizable body of believers, the local church. Now, it is true that there is not a command explicitly in the New Testament that says something like, thou shalt become a member of the church. All right? You won't find something like that in Scripture. However, it is also very clear in Scripture that a formal belonging, in other words, a sense of who's in the church and who's not in, is prevalent throughout the New Testament churches and the apostolic instructions to, to guide and govern their corporate life. Let me give you just a few examples. I'm going to put this one up on the screen. We talked about this a couple weeks ago already from Matthew chapter 16 and 18. Remember we discussed this, this concept of the keys of the, to the kingdom, right? And, and, and this was in, in, the, in the sermon about what the church is and part of our, the authority that we have to declare who is in the kingdom, right? So I tell you, Jesus says, you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You have the keys, and you are the church that I am building, and what you bind will be bound, what you loose will be loose. You have some authority to affirm and declare who's in, who's out. That is made more clear in Matthew 18 when he's talking about someone who sins against you within the context of this, this church life, this, these, these relationships and proximity. He says, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell them. And if they refuse to listen, you take somebody else. And if they still refuse to listen, he says, then you take it to the church. And if there's not a repentance, if there's not a reconciliation, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, like someone who's not in the church. He says, so again, truly I say to you, what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Just a couple things I want to, to point out and highlight there about what's happening in Matthew 18. Yes, this is talking about this process we call church discipline, right? How do we how do we go and approach others when we've sinned against one another? The goal of this whole passage is to see somebody restored, to see somebody reconciled in relationship to God and with us, with others, right? That's the goal. But in that, there's these 
There's these commands, there's these instructions that he gives that, that beg some questions. He says, take this issue before the church. We have to ask the question, who is that? Who's the church? Who is it that we're taking this before? And then he talks about being treated like a Gentile or a tax collector versus being reconciled. There's this idea clearly there of who's then in the church and who's clearly not in the church, right? More examples then that we see following that of how the disciples were working out this idea of belonging and in and out. In Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 47, there is a numerical record displayed there of those who have professed Christ and, have, and had been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's in verse 41. There's an acknowledgement that the church was tracking the growth of the church. Verse 47. That's Acts 2. In Acts chapter 6, then we see elections taking place among church members for deacon roles. And they're doing that in order to address a specific problem and a specific accusation that was happening in the Jerusalem church. So there's this clear like, all right, let's get together. Those of you who are in, let's set out certain people, certain servants, certain deacons to meet a need. There's clear parameters for who's in, who belongs, who's a part of this process, and who are we serving? Romans chapter 16, verses 1 to 16, we see what appears to be an awareness of who is a church member. It's an interesting passage. It's one of those passages where you see lots of people listed and just named, right? As at the end of Paul's letters, he does that a lot. But here he specifically names 28 people and their families as those who make up the church of Rome, or at least part of the church in Rome. Maybe he didn't name all of them. But you get this clear sense of like, these are the people I'm writing to in the church. 1 Timothy 5, we see a clear teaching on how to handle widows in the church. In this text, we see criteria for who would and who would not qualify for the church's widow care. The local church then in Ephesus is demonstrating that they're organized. They're working out a plan for member care. And I'll have you look at one passage with me here. 1 Corinthians 5, if you want to flip there. This is on page 954 if you're using the Pew Bible, by the way. 1 Corinthians 5, we read here of Paul's admonition to the Corinthian church to formally remove a member from their fellowship because this member is living a life of open and unrepentant sin. So in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, Paul says to them, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So here's the, here's the sin. Here's the, here's the accusation against somebody in the congregation. And then he says, and you're, you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? They've been tolerating this person's uh, presence in the body. And he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul is telling them, practice what Jesus taught back in Matthew 18, right? You're, you're, to, you're to confront and you're to remove the unrepentant one with the hope that he will 
be shaken, right, and awakened back to repentance, that he'll be saved. But you see, he's doing, he's saying, you gotta, you have someone who's in, you need to clearly delineate that they're out, that they're not in, that we can't affirm Christ in an unrepentant person. And in doing this, he's marking a clear delineation between the membership of the church and the membership of the world. Look at verse 11 there of chapter 5. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. <clears throat> you purge the evil person from among you. You see, the New Testament churches, under apostolic authority and guidance, kept formal records of who was in and who was not in the church. Church membership mattered. Now, I want to keep walking down this, this sort of line of thinking here and examine why did it matter? Why does it matter? It's, clearly, it's clear that it did matter. They, were, they had this, this sense of who was in and out. Why did it matter? Why is it so important for us to understand? So let me give you just two more things. The second point is this. Church membership matters for the sake of the church and you who are a part of it. In a nutshell... A clear sense of who belongs to a local church is important because there is a high bar of accountability and responsibility that is set out for each of us as we live together within this worshiping community. There's a high bar of responsibility and accountability. Remember again in my first sermon in this series, which was titled, What is the Church? We talked about various biblical metaphors for what the what the church is like, ways that the Bible describes what the church is like. We talked about the church as the, the body of Christ or the, the bride of Christ or that we're sheep and he's our shepherd. But we keyed in on one key metaphor and that was the idea of the church as family. And I think this is a helpful picture, this idea of family. When it comes to demonstrating how the local church gives us all a unique bond and responsibility towards one another. So most of us all of us really, one way or the other, have families, right? And in your family, you have your immediate family. You have then your extended family. And then beyond that, you have the rest of the world that's outside of your family. In other words, they're not your family, right? Immediate family, extended family, then people who are not your family. Your immediate family would be like your husband or your wife or your parents or your children. What makes them immediate is that you, you live together. You eat meals together. You provide for one another's daily needs. You know each other intimately. You bear with one another through all of the ups and downs of life. Again, I know I'm talking about an ideal family situation here, but in an immediate family, you get the picture. There is this high level of responsibility that we have towards one another. It's of the highest order in your immediate family. And then you move beyond that to your extended family, maybe your aunts or your, your uncles, your cousins, your nieces, your nephews. There's also this special bond. They're, they're family, 
There's responsibilities that come with that bond, but it's not at the same level as the responsibilities of your immediate family, right? It's just not quite the same. You're not living together. You're not bearing one another's daily burdens, meeting each other's daily needs. It's just a little different. And then again, beyond that, you've got responsibilities to those who are not your family. We have biblical commands like love your neighbor, seek the welfare of your city. But again, one step even further removed, those are not nearly as significant as the obligations you have to your family. So think of, if you, if you can kind of, yeah, I, I get that. I, that makes sense. Then understand that the church family is similar. The local church is our immediate family. It's to the local church that we have this accountability and responsibility that is of the highest order. We do life together. And then the universal church is more like our extended family. We're still bonded together in Christ, but because we don't live together, the levels of responsibility and our, frankly, our ability to practically fulfill any of those responsibilities is lessened. And then, of course, we have the world, and the world is the world. And we love our neighbors, but we have no true fellowship or family obligations towards them. When we get that, and we then recognize, okay, who is immediate family? And then who's not in our immediate family? It informs us about who we're most responsible for. And then the commands of Scripture that we're called to live out as Christians, all of a sudden have a place to land, right? They have, they have people to whom we can actually fulfill these commands and, and live out these loving rules and, and, and relationship with one another. Now it's, it's applicable, what I'm called to do as a believer. And again, it can only really be fulfilled in relationships that have real proximity with one another, let me just uh, give you a couple of, uh, of, of examples. Look with me at the one another commands. I'll put these up on the screen as well. The, the one another commands of Scripture. Be at peace with one another. Bear with one another in love. Love one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. All of those things demand relationship, don't they? All of those things demand proximity to one another. Actually, do, I can't forgive somebody who hasn't sinned against me. And you can only sin against me if you know me, right? You might be really tempted to sin against me if you know me. I don't know. But that's, there's like a clear understanding of like, yeah, this can't happen in the universal church or in the world the same way that it can happen in a local church. Ephesians 4 tells us that we're to have apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, real people in real proximity to us, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. We looked at this passage uh, a couple weeks ago, and he says, they're speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. That's all of us. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so it builds itself up in love. How do we do that? If we don't know who is and isn't a part of our immediate family, who am I responsible to build up? And who's responsible for building me up? 
Just to beat a dead horse a little bit more, let me throw one more idea up on the screen for you. Hebrews 13, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Which church leaders are you called to remember and imitate and submit to? It says here, those who directly speak God's word to you and watch over your souls, right? Does that include just any church leader, say at the the church across town? No, right? They don't, they don't know you, you don't know them. That's obvious. And importantly here in verse 17 of Hebrews 13, who am I as a pastor going to have to give an account to God for? That's a serious call. I need to know, right? That's why church membership is so fundamentally important. We need these clear parameters for determining whom we're accountable to, right? Who it is that is within our immediate family in which these one another's and all the other commands can be lived out. Remember, I'll put it back up on the screen, our definition of church membership. Church membership is a formal relationship between a local church and a Christian that is characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship within the care of the church. And that is ultimately good for us. It's good for us. It's good for you. It's good for the church. Why? A couple quick things. Church membership commits you. I'll put this up here too. It commits you. The Christian. It's good to commit yourself to love and to serve other people. Right? If I'm just kind of hopping around and and I'm sort of an attender of a church, I have no commitments there to do anything. If I'm a member, I suddenly have a covenant commitment to say, I have to love you, and I have to serve you. I have to care for you. And here's the good news for me. I grow as a Christian as I commit to encourage, build up, strengthen, serve, rebuke, and pray for other Christians. I grow. And when you're doing that for me, you grow and we grow together. Secondly, others are committed to you. That's kind of what I just said, right? Becoming a member of a church means joining with an entire group of Christians who've now covenanted to watch over you spiritually. You have elder protection. If you're a member of a church, that church's elders and pastors should care for you, pray for you, personally counsel you, teach you. As a member of their church, they're accountable to God for you. There's a safety net involved. Being a church member means that a whole church full of people are committed to helping you live a life that's pleasing to God, even to the point of excluding you from the church if you stop repenting of sin. And I know that that sounds harsh to some people, but to those of us who know the deceitfulness of sin, there's an immensely encouraging reality to that. And again, our assurance, it's the, it's the, ch- the church's affirmation, membership. When we say, yes, we, we welcome you into the membership of the body here, it is our affirmation of the validity of your profession of faith. Matthew 16 and 18. We look at your life, we hear your 
testimony, your explanation of the gospel, how you believed it, and we say to you, you know what? You look like a Christian to us. That checks out, as my son would say. So join us. Watch over us, and we'll watch over you. When you look at the whole New Testament, it becomes clear that God's plan for his church is that we would belong, and that we would belong to this local gathering, this people who are in covenant relationship with one another. That's for our own protection, it's for our own maturation, and it's for the good of others. The bottom line I hope you get here is this, local church membership is actually a question of biblical obedience, not personal preference. It matters for you and the church. And then the third point this morning is this, that it actually matters for the sake of the world too. Church membership matters for the sake of the world. You say, what? How? Well, let me tell you how. Mark Dever puts it like this. I couldn't put it better, so I'm just going to read some of what he said here. He says, it might sound odd, but one way we love non-Christians and evangelize the world is by joining a local church. By joining a church, we show non-Christians and those who think that they're Christians what true conversion looks like. We provide a clear distinction between the church and the world, visibly showing that believers are inside the church while unbelievers remain outside. 1 Corinthians 5 again. Furthermore, when we join a local church, we intensify our evangelistic efforts. We are, as a local church, by nature, a missionary organization. We promote the gospel by cooperating to take it to those who've not yet heard it, by making the gospel visible into this world that we live in. Jesus taught that all men know, will know that we are his disciples if we love one another. And when the world looks at the church, they should see Christ's love in the way that we care for one another, even though we are imperfect in that, right? As imperfect as we are, if God's spirit is genuinely at work within us, he will use our lives to help demonstrate to the world what Christ's love looks like, what the gospel looks like and does. And that's a special role that we have now in this world that we won't have when we get to heaven. And we declare the message of God's love in Christ. And as we do that, we display the same love here in the local church. When we forgive one another, when we call one another to repentance, when we encourage one another, when we speak the word of God to one another, all of those things, again, displaying the love of Christ who did those same things for us. So Dever says, our lives together give credibility to the message that we proclaim. If we truly love our non-Christian friends, we'll sign up for Jesus' evangelism plan and we'll commit to a local congregation. I say to that, amen, I agree. Let me give you one last thing, though, to consider. I think this is important. A way in which the commitments of church membership do speak powerfully into the world, do speak powerfully into our current cultural moment and point them to Jesus. I want to just say this. Let's be real and admit that the whole idea of church membership is pretty countercultural. It's pretty countercultural. And that's true because of what we're called to in church membership. Think about it. We're called to submit ourselves to one another. We're called to be accountable 
to other people. That is countercultural, right? To commit oneself to church membership is then to say, look, my identity as a follower of Jesus is intrinsically tied to the affirmation and oversight of other Christians who are together being conformed into the likeness of Christ by his word. That's what it says. My identity as a follower of Christ is intrinsically tied to the affirmation of other people. In other words, I don't get to determine on my own what it means for me to be a Christian. That's what it says. That's something our cultural moment doesn't get. You don't get to determine on your own what it means for you to be whatever you want to be. And unfortunately, I think many Christians don't really understand this either. We live in a culture that, frankly, increasingly despises any kind of authority or conformity to a higher standard. We live in, a, in, a, in an age of what's been called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism, it's just the air that we breathe. Andy talked about this a little bit last week, and, and, and he was highlighting uh, Carl Truman's book, and he talked about this concept of the, the social imaginary. Expressive individualism is sort of the, our social imaginary. It's the air that we breathe. We are all expressive individualists. You are, and so am I, Right? And here's what that means. It means that each of us finds our meaning or we're told that we can find our meaning by giving expression to our feelings, expression to our own desires. We're told that's how you become your most authentic self. Just express your, whatever's going on in you, express it. That's the real you. The dominant worldview of the 21st century, particularly in the West, supposes that meaning and purpose must be created by the individual because there is no such thing as intrinsic meaning or there is no such thing as a given end for humanity. There's no specific given end for what we're all here for, where we're we're headed, what we're doing in life. Therefore, each of us has to find and live out our own path. And you got to do that without the pressure of conforming to anybody else's idea of what your path should be, right? Whether that's another individual, whether that's an institution, whether that's society. So I think we all recognize, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of the air we breathe, right? Every movie we go to, the hero is always the one who doesn't conform to what everybody else is, but finds their, their most authentic expression of themselves. That's, that's, like, that's what we do. But listen, we're Christians. And as Christians, we have to see that that is the biggest cultural idol of our day. It's nothing new, by the way, because all idolatries are attempts to find meaning and purpose in something other than God, right? To find meaning and purpose in creation or ourselves or some false deity. It's not new, but there still has been this noticeable cultural shift over the past 50 years in particular, I would think, that has taken this idea of individualism to the extreme. And as Christians, we got to see that. And we also got to see that because scripture and frankly, common sense life experience are pretty clear on this, every idolatry is ultimately destructive. 
if meaning and purpose can only be individually assessed, and if my meaning and purpose are laid upon the foundations of my feelings and my desires, then that foundation is only as good as my feelings. <laughs> and that's a problem, right? That's why so many people are so demonstrably unstable and so confused by their shifting identities and their sort of ever-tentative values. That book Andy mentioned from Carl Truman, it's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a great book. I would recommend it. But, but one of the things Truman says there, he says, in this world that we live, the language of morality, our, our value system, he says, is really nothing more than the language of personal preference based on nothing more rational or objective than sentiments or feelings. That's the worldview we live in. That's not the Bible's worldview. A biblical worldview, on the other hand, regards the world as having a given order, having a specific given end. You and I, as human beings made in the image of God, we have a given end. We have an order. There's something bigger than us that is over us and directs us and guides us that we are to conform to. It's the opposite of what the world is telling us. All of this meaning and purpose finds its basis in the unchanging nature of God, in the truths of his word, and in the love that he's demonstrated most fully to us through the cross of Christ. Remember what Paul says in Acts chapter 17 to the idolatrous Athenians? He says, listen guys, you're all confused. You don't know anything about like anything about related to God or reality or life. And he points to this 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 statue of the unknown God. He says, let me tell you about this God you don't know. There's a real God, and it is in him that we move and live and have our being. Meaning and purpose, in other words, Paul is saying here, is these are things that we discover outside of ourselves. In him, we move and live and have our being. There is such a thing as intrinsic meaning, there is such a thing as a given end for which humanity exists. You say, Bill, what does that got to do with church membership? Here's, how, here's what it has to do with church membership. Church membership actually becomes a way for us then as Christians to declare that reality, there's something bigger than us, to a watching world. A world that needs to see that that's true. And a world that needs to see that that's actually ultimately what's good for us. When we talk about membership here, you might hear us use the phrase meaningful membership. We have a meaningful membership, uh, uh, our understanding of membership here at Edgewater. I want you to know that it's not, it, that doesn't just mean we take it seriously. Meaningful membership, we take it seriously. I mean, it, 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 that's true, but it means more than that. It, it means this, it means we find meaning and purpose in our belonging to something bigger than ourselves. It's meaningful in that regard. Why do we find purpose and meaning in something bigger than ourselves? Because that's exactly what the Christian worldview through Jesus and the writers of Scripture leads us to do. Let me throw a couple of verses up on the screen for you. What does Jesus say? He tells his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross, die to yourself, and follow me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It doesn't mean to determine your own morality by your sentiments or feelings. It means die to yourself and recognize there's something bigger than me. There's someone above me. Following him means dying to me. 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed. To be made in the likeness of something that's not like you now, but that's bigger than you. What is that? The image of his son. To be like Jesus. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. A healthy view of church membership, recognizing that, like, yeah, this is, this is where we're at. We're, we're made for something outside of ourselves. We are to be conformed into that likeness. And this, 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 this view, then, of, of church membership and, and, and the willful act of coming under the care and the oversight of God's people in the church is a declaration to yourself, to the church, and to the world, I'm made for something bigger than myself. I need accountability, oversight, conformity, all these things that seem so countercultural, that seem to push against what we think it means to be human. I recognize that actually in God's economy, that's where I find my humanity. We find our purest good and our highest meaning by belonging, belonging to a community of faith that helps us mutually conform into the likeness of the truest and highest good, God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. Congratulations, you've all completed membership class number one. <laughs> Application. Listen, if you're a church member, remember the whole point of this series is to kind of call us back to our understanding of the church, to call us back to our ecclesiology. If you're a church member, the application is this. Re renew your commitment to the formal calling of being a part of the family. Right? It's easy for, for any of us to sort of slide back into sort of the, the easy pattern of, sort of just attending on Sundays and, you know, maybe doing a Bible study here or there. What are we called to? We're called to the, 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 the discipleship, oversight, care of one another. So we need to renew our commitment to that. You should go back and read our church covenant, which you probably have a copy of someplace. And if you're not, it's on our website, right? What is it that we're, we've covenanted together to be? How are we caring for one another? Call, call yourself back to the, the, the high standard of church membership and what it entails. And if you're not a church member yet, this is just an invitation to invite you to explore more of what this looks like and means here at Edgewater in our upcoming class that actually starts next Sunday. You've all just, again, you've all done class number one, I promise you. That's what we talk about in class number one is like, what is church membership and why does it matter? You've done it. We're not going to redo that next week. You're actually going to go right into class number two next week. And you might say, I'm ready for that. Then great come, and several of you have already signed up to do that. You might say, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. I would just encourage you, come anyway. This is not an obligation to say you're ready. It's just a chance to understand more of what it means and why it's important. 
and what it would look like to be a member of a local body of Christ here at Edgewater. So I invite you to prayerfully consider that. But ultimately, I hope that we understand that there is something really important about the local church, significantly important about the local church. The universal church, our professions of faith and division in Christ, those are all good and wonderful and beautiful things. But the local church is the place where the rubber meets the road. And so I want to encourage us to, to, to again, come back to driving on that road. Get your tires uh, wet. Get them a little bald. Spin out a little bit, right? Let the rubber meet the road. Let's pray.